Listener Production. Hello, this is Bron Doizak. You usually hear me at the end of the weekend briefing episodes, giving you recommendations on what to watch, do, eat and listen to. But today I'm jumping in at the top to introduce this wonderful conversation between Jamila Rizvi and our glorious guest Indira Naidu. Indira is an Australian author, journalist, television and radio presenter. She has had a colourful life full of travel and unique experiences. Indira is the eldest in her family. She is one of three sisters. In 2020, Indira's whole world changed when she lost her vivacious, intelligent younger sister. In this conversation, Jamila Rizvi and Indira Naidu discuss loss, grief and the incredible healing powers of nature. I'll give a content warning at the top of the episode. There is mention of suicide. Help and support is always available. If you need to talk, please contact Lifeline by calling 13 11 14. Indira Naidu, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. We are delighted to have you. It's great to be with you, Jamila. I have a strange confession to make, uh, which is that when I was born and I was called Jamila Rizvi, my grandmother on the white Australian side of my family was a bit taken aback by this name that she didn't recognise or didn't know anything about. Nonetheless, she was trying to be supportive and she said to my mum, well, maybe one day she'll be able to read the news for SBS. And (laughs) it was never mentioned again until she saw you reading the news and she called my mum and said, look, that's what Jamila could be one day. And it was considered the, 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 the height of all heights. And if she was still alive, she would just be so impressed uh, that I was getting to chat to you. Imagine how much further I could have gone if my name had been Jamila. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. Uh, but I've got to say, it's a real, it's a real delight to uh, have the chance to have a conversation with you. Can we start at the beginning? Because the thing about people we see on our TV screens is we often know very little about how they ended up there in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit about you as a kid? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm going right so, back. Yeah, that's going right back. It's going 50 years. Well, we, as I write in my book, Space Between the Stars, had an extremely adventurous life, which I think as I get older, I realise more and more. But like most kids, your life was your life and you didn't think it was anything special. But now I realise what an extraordinary adventure it was, what a privilege it was. And it really began right at the beginning, a few years after I was born, I think I was about two, uh, we began this journey uh, of moving from country to country to try to find a place that was going to be a home. We were all born in South Africa and at the time, uh, apartheid, the race separation laws in South Africa were pretty horrific and my parents couldn't study in the country they were born in because only non-whites could go to university. They then were sent overseas to get qualifications by their family who scraped and saved. And when they came back, they wouldn't couldn't be employed because only whites could be employed as dentists and, and, and the teachers and translators they wanted to be. So it set off a journey of having to leave the country, their family, everything they knew to find a home to bring up their family. So we moved from South Africa to Zambia, then to England, then to Australia, then back to Africa, to Zimbabwe, and then back again to Australia when I was 16. So by the time I was 13, we'd lived in five countries already. And of course, all that change and movement and crossing paths with others around the world who are also thrown into finding worlds and and dislocated because of conflicts and 
uh, economic circumstances. It meant that uh, from a very young age, I interacted with so many different people in, in walks of life in different countries. So I guess it was always going to set me off on a path very similar to journalism or broadcasting or, or working in that environment because I've always been fascinated by people and issues and ideas. Obviously, you were, you were very young when your families first started moving around. How, how aware of apartheid were you? And sort of what age did that sort of start to come into your consciousness that that kicked off your family's movement around the world? Well, people would always ask us from a very young age, why are you here? <laughs> why is this little dark Indian girl uh, sitting in, uh, uh, you know, watching Wimbledon tennis where there's only white people around? How, how did this happen? And so we would then ask our parents, why are we here? Why aren't we living with all our cousins and our grandmothers and things? And they'd say, there's this thing called apartheid. So from a very young age, it always uh, sparked conversation. So we always wanted to know more about it and why it was, how it was and why no one was stopping it. I, I think that that was always the question. Well, if it was so horrible and so nasty, why was it still there? Why, you know, um, hadn't it been dismantled? And I think that for my parents, that was something that they were always passionate about doing. So even though they left their country, they spent a lot of their time as activists trying to educate people about, about apartheid, about South Africa and the importance of, of getting rid of it. So it was something that even though I was never subjected to it really as a child personally, it obviously informed everything my parents and and all my family uh, still living in South Africa were going through. So I, I was always conscious of it. You were one of three sisters. Tell me about growing up together and what kind of kid were you? Were you the adventurous one, the bossy one, the smart one, the silly one? Where did you sort of fit in that in that family hierarchy? Yeah, we were one of three sisters and again, it was just what we were and it's only, you know, recently in writing this book, I realised what a unique relationship we all had. There was only a year between each of us, so we were incredibly were close, close in age. In age. Uh, and because we moved around a lot as a family, it meant we were leaving family and leaving friends behind constantly. So there was always a new school. I think we went to 10, I went to 10 different wow. schools. And that meant that your sisters became even tighter and closer because they were your friends. So that first day at the new school where you had no friends and no one wanted to talk to you, you knew you had your sisters there and play break or recess that would sit there and eat your sandwich with you, you know, where no one else would. And it was constantly changing. We were jumping cultures and countries and languages and religions as well. So it wasn't just going to a new school. It was suddenly everyone in our school was white. And then the next year, everyone was black. And then the next year, everyone spoke English. And then wow. the next year, everyone spoke Shauna. It was like, wow. What? And so your sisters then became uh, your gang, your buddies, and the sort of glue, I guess, that always made you sort of bounce back from any situation that you were struggling with. You knew that, you know, they were there and, and it made us very close and, and very tight. When did journalism come onto the agenda for you? Um, I think I just fell into it, actually, Jimmy. Yeah, right. I, I, you know, applied as a lot of Year 12 kids do to various courses, had no idea really specifically what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to travel, meet people and write. And 
there was a, there's a number of things that fall into that category. I, I was also interested in foreign affairs. I wanted to work in the foreign affairs department. Yes, I wanted to be a journalist, but I also thought of just writing and being being an author, being a writer. So I just randomly applied to courses and that was the one I happened to get in. I love that that's the reason because, you know, so often people have those stories of like from birth, I knew this was who I was supposed to be. And like, I do think for most kids, the reality is that you kind of take your marks and you go shopping and you're like, oh yeah, I'll give that, I'll give that a go, right? Yeah, because the thing is, it's like having, you have your feet and then you go to a shop to find a shoe that fits you. And it's never going to be exactly like your foot. You're going to have to squeeze into whatever the shoe is that's around. And that's for me what a career and a job is. There's nothing that's ever, for me, the perfect fit, but I have to have a shoe to walk around and get around life. So I'll go to a shop and and find the shoe and then a couple of years I'll need to, I'll outgrow that shoe and have to get a new pair. And for me, that's what work and career and jobs have always been. It's Mm. where my interest and my creativity is taking me. And, And that for me is my priority. It's not the particular job or the particular role. You published The Space Between the Stars in March of 2022. You mentioned writing just then as something that was what you liked and something you knew you were good at. Was writing a book always a plan? Uh, I think from a young age I've always loved reading and it just was that fantasy as a child. Wow. Imagine if I can write words and I can have a book and my name can be in a cover and I can write a story that other kids will write and I can go to a library and there my book will be on the shelf. I mean, as a child, that was one of my, I have to be one of my fantasies. So I was very lucky that, you know, this is my third book and this one was a book that almost came to me. I, I don't think I really wanted to write it but it knocked on my door and it says, you have to tell this story. So uh, it's easily the hardest thing that I've had to do to write this particular book. But I'm so glad I did because not only did it help me with my healing process, but it's from the reaction from readers been helping so many other people. Mm. You, of course, did write The Edible Balcony in 2011 and The Edible City in 2015, which are both part of the beautiful Penguin Lantern series, which have to be some of the most physically beautiful as well as beautifully written books that are around. The Space Between the Stars is different, though, of course. It explores love between siblings and it also explores the trauma of suicide and, and you do write so elegantly about your sister's death. Can you tell me about making the decision to speak publicly? Uh, I never really did. I think that sometimes these sorts of things just happen. Uh, After my sister took her life, we were in lockdown. Uh, She was living in Melbourne. It was obviously very horrific uh, conditions down there, as you would know, and made doubly worse than how to deal with her death is that I live across the border in New South Wales. Most of my family live in other parts of the country. So we couldn't be together. We uh, we restricted to 20 people at the funeral. And then we couldn't stay in Melbourne because you could only have a few people in, in everyone's house. So we all had to flee. So it, it just made a horrific um, incident even worse. And so I feel for anyone that lost loved ones during that period, because the grief was so exacerbated, no matter what sort of grief you went through, what sort of loss. And for me, 
writing has always been, and, and art has always been a way to make sense of things. And so I very quickly started writing things down in, in journal form, not ever thinking that it would be a book. It was just to get my ideas and my emotions straight in my head. And out of the blue, uh, my publisher, Jane Morrow, sent me an email saying, I think we're living in an era where, and in a time where people are looking of different ways to connect and and heal. Would you be interested in writing a book about biophilia, given your interest in nature and your other books that you've written on the mm. subject? Uh, can nature help us, you know, when we're going through this sort of stuff? And she had no idea my sister had died. She had no idea oh, wow. I was already in in spending time in nature. It was just the most extraordinary random thing that I do believe my sister, who I call Stargirl in my book, actually facilitated the connection for because it's not that you want to write a book when you're in the depths of grief. Writing a book is is a grief project anyway. So it was double grief, but it was the most extraordinary uh, alignment of opportunities. And so that is why I wrote. Now, I wrote in this way that I think a lot of authors do. You write just for you with this idea of a reader in your head, but you're not really conscious of who that person is. And so I never really thought much further in advance about it being public. What would it be like with this book, all this stuff sitting on a shelf, people reading it, strangers, what impact would it have on family? It was really just the sense of just having to download the emotion. I wasn't really thinking much more in advance. And it was only really towards the end when the manuscript was finished about a year later. So I started reading, writing a, a couple of weeks after my sister died. When I had that finished manuscript and then it hit me, oh my gosh, this is now going to go out into the public. It was very important for my family to feel comfortable with it as yeah. well. So that was really the first time that I thought about that. And I just had to trust that what I was saying was true to me, was authentic for me and dearly hoping that there would be at least one person that would be helped by what I was writing about. I think uh, you can be certainly assured of that because I, it is such a gift to, it sounds trite, but it is such a gift, I think, to write about trauma, particularly trauma born of suicide or trauma born of an experience that most people will not go through in their lives. And so... I think you feel so much more alone when you experience a trauma where you feel like you don't know who to talk to. There's not someone in your life who has necessarily had the same experience where you're, you're able to unpack it with them. So I think the space between the stars is, is truly a gift in, in that regard. I want to ask you about nature and the, the role of nature in, in your healing and what you've, you've learned through your writing. But before we get to that, can you tell me a little bit about your sister? <laughs> she was... A one-off, um, extraordinary charismatic character. Uh, you saw her immediately and felt her presence as soon as she walked into any room. She had a megawatt smile and uh, she was, you know, razor sharp, most incredible mind. She was beautiful. She was cheeky. She was daring. Uh, she took on anyone. She she didn't like suffering fools very much. She was a gifted journalist and writer in her own way, a Walkley award-winning journalist. She did everything she wanted to do. She had a beautiful family, lovely husband and a daughter. She travelled widely. 
she uh, worked not only for the age and then for government, um, helping to uh, to premiers, Victorian premiers, media advisor to them, and then doing her masters. Uh, she was really fascinated about terrorism and how they use social media to engage people uh, with their ideas, their dark ideas. So you know, she was just did everything she wanted to do. She was the youngest sister, so there's a middle sister and, and me. So as the older sister, I guess I was always very protective of her. My parents would always, you know, say, Indira, it's up to you to look after uh, Monica and make sure she doesn't get into trouble, which was always a difficult thing because she did get into trouble quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, she was just great company. You know, she loved to dance. Um, she was a wonderful. She loved swimming. She was a wonderful swimmer. Uh, so. Yeah, she was someone who was just alive and doing things. So for that sort of person to uh, be gone, for that for the life to be gone, for them to to decide to take their own life, it, it's a very confronting thing because again, when people haven't had suicide touch their life, they assume that you know things must be really, really terrible in your life. That That's why this thing happens. Mm. But for her, it was just that, you know, she just had an imbalance in her, her, the way her brain was wired. And unfortunately, she thought she could fix it herself rather than getting medical support, rather getting medication. And, you know, that just got worse and worse. And of course, the pandemic and lockdown, which it did for all of us, you know, just sent our anxieties you know, off the scale. And so if you already have existing anxiety and, and uh, mental health issues, it's, it wasn't a good time. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an, a terrible loss because she was really quite extraordinary, quite brilliant. Uh, you have drawn a really beautiful, very brief portrait there. And um, I look forward to recommending the book to all of our listeners afterwards so they can get a broader portrait. Um, of yeah. Who she and was. she was so naughty. The stories I share People don't expect it, but it's it's a really funny book. There's yeah, lots of laugh is. out loud moments when we just did. And again, I never really thought this when we were growing up, that we were all quite, we had so much freedom then in the 70s to go about our day. Our, we ha hardly ever even saw our parents. We'd just jump on our bikes and off we'd go for adventures and, you know, climb trees and, and dive, you know, into creeks and, and ride our bikes and play tennis and go swimming and walk. And we'd get into quite a bit of trouble too. We'd get out, not too bad of trouble, you know, but just naughty, naughty things and mischievous things. And I share a lot of those stories. So it's lovely having those memories as well. So remembering all the good times and writing those stories down, especially for her daughter who mm. can now have stories of her mother because they're yeah. about the same age now. So the stories I'm sharing about a mother, you know, her daughter's that same age. So she can picture what it must have been like for a mother to be that age. And, uh, yeah, they're really delightful stories. Your book did a couple of things for me. I, I think, uh, firstly, I'm also an eldest sister um, um, and it really made me reflect on the unique nature of the sibling relationship, you know, the, the, the fact that you are essentially bearing witness to one another's lives. Like there will be a point 
that comes hopefully a long way away, but there will be a point that comes for me where my sister is the person who has known me the longest, right? Yeah. And has known me the, the, the most intimately of, of anyone. And, and, you know, it's something my, my the husband and my son will never match. It's something that is unique to that. And it, you, yeah. you express that so well. But the other thing that really stayed with me um, after reading was the way you describe the role of nature in, in your healing. And it did make me reflect on you know, those periods in, in, in Melbourne and I, I was in Melbourne during during the lockdowns that, you know, when we weren't allowed outside for more than an hour a day and, you know, you couldn't go outside at night after 8pm, even to sit in the, sort of on the nature strip to sort of, you know, listen to the birds yeah. and be with the, something that wasn't your, your the walls of your house or the walls of your apartment. It, tell me about the role nature has played for you since your sister died in helping you to come to terms with what's happened. I don't think it's putting too big a thing on it, but nature saved me, I, I would say. Uh, I had that five-kilometre zone around me like a lot of Australians did during lockdown, and I thought that was restrictive. You know, I thought, how am I going to survive with only this amount of space around me or access? And the usual places I could go to, the usual friends I could see, I didn't have that in that five kilometres, but I was lucky. I had the Sydney Royal Botanic Gardens and a little bit of edge of the uh, Sydney Harbour foreshore. So, of course, I was so much more privileged than a lot of people. And I'd walk that walk to the Botanic Gardens from my house. It's about two kilometres many, many times over the 25 years that I've lived in Potts Point. But now I was walking it with such a different awareness and paying attention in such a way because it was precious. I had this one hour and this was all I had. So make the most of it. And so suddenly, as I describe in the, in the book, the cracks in the footpath, the little weeds, the feathers that I came across, the leaves that would fall from the trees, the clouds in the sky. I did an evening of stargazing and I'd never done that before, ever really thought of looking at the stars from my apartment balcony. And I discovered that there was so much joy around me that I'd always taken for granted. And while I was going through this very deep loss and sorrow, the stars and bits of nature were just buzzing with aliveness and joy and they were lifting my spirits. And I discovered during these walks, this extraordinary Moreton Bay fig tree. It was about 150 years old and its branches were just so generous and consoling and it was like it was pulling its arms around me and, and giving me this deep hug at a time when it was very hard to find words to express my grief. A lot of people yeah. struggle with that during their grief, no matter what the loss is. You just don't have the vocabulary. And with a tree, you don't have to say anything. It just is it just is with you and that was very comforting and nourishing and I would often walk to the tree and just sit with it and just be and the stillness which again we don't have a, a lot in our lives we're always rushing everywhere and we're always distracted by our devices and I would just be quiet and still no device under the tree and suddenly all these other bits of nature would make itself known to me the little ants crawling up and down the trunk the birds tweeting above me, little bits of feathers would fall out of the in the tree branches. And suddenly I saw this whole ecosystem all around me that was living life and going about the cycles of life. The sun would rise, the sun would set, the moonshine would come out. And my grief then started to fit into the, the bigger cycle of nature. And 
the rest of the world was still humming with happiness. I talk about that. It's, it's so difficult. You're so bereft and grief struck. Yeah. But there's this, still this beautiful glow. Everything keeps going and, and being born. And that cycle reassured me. And it also opened me up to the wonders of nature and the realization that everything has its time. Everything is born, everything dies. Humans are part of that cycle. And we try to pretend we can live We're forever. Not. We're not going to age. This is never going to happen to us. But it is, you know, uh, it is the thing that is almost certain we will die. Uh, and it was just cracks in the footpath where I walked every day that revealed the beauty of life to me and and bit by bit the healing um, started for me. Honestly, that is just the most picturesque description uh, and so lovely hearing it in your voice elevates it even further from reading your words on the page. I, I remember when um, my little boy was, oh, he would have been three or four months old, uh, mm. maybe a little bit older and I remember walking through the streets of Clifton Hill in Melbourne in a part that where there are a lot of trees and it was a really windy day and we were caught in this sort of almost wind tunnel. I remember the wind just, you know, pushing through and thinking, oh, my God, this is such pain. I've just got to get this kid to the car yeah. <laughs> thinking about all the things I had to do. And he threw his head back in the wind and just giggled and laughed out loud. And it was like this is the first time you've experienced like a strong wind in your face and it's joyous and mm. when was the last time I stopped and actually thought this is such a beautiful feeling and mm. um, I think the answer is never. <laughs> I had never stopped <laughs> and thought that and, um, it, you know, it's so easy for it to sound too simple and, and I love the, the message that you sort of have that it doesn't have to be an extraordinary novel trip into nature that is expensive or curated. It, it, it is just about going outside, something that yeah, we are all allowed to do again. We are paying attention. I think that that was the big difference that changed in me is that I wasn't rushing through the moments of my day. And I think that that has really stayed with me now. Every moment that I'm in is the preciousness. I'm not rushing to where I'm going to go, not stuck in the past of where I was, like being right here, right now, being aware of my breath, uh, you know, the, the sun on my face, all that, all that breeze coming, going through my hair. Those sensations and the way it stimulates all my senses, it is enlivening and it does remind you about how joyous it is to be alive. And it, and you may have gone through a terrible loss as I have, but, you know, watching Ants for a Day with um, my ant man and these ants, they live amazing lives and they do so much and they build these huge ant mounds and they collect all this debris and they recycle and, and all the decomposition and, and help out our lives and our ecosystems. But they do it all frenetically because, and I think a lot of reason is they only live for seven to eight days. And when I thought about that, a week, imagine if we only had a week to live. And, and here I was feeling so heartbroken that I'd only had 48 years with my sister. And this these ants were reminding me that that's a lot to be grateful for. You can still look at that time with your sister with deep gratitude. And I'm sure an ant would love to have 48 years if they could, but they only get six to seven days. So the perspective started to change and that's what nature does. It gives you a much bigger sense. You know, when I look at the stars and I look at all the planets and how long they've been around, millions and millions of years, and that star has probably exploded before my that light's even reached me. And I'm just a blip, a tiny speck, you know, and how beautiful, what a privilege it is to be part of these cycles of, of life. 
and everything has to, you know, all the beauty that happens, a, a new baby happens because something has started and something will end. That That is all part of the cycle, you know. So, yeah, it, it's it's filled me with a lot of gratitude. I wouldn't have thought losing a sister in this way would actually not only help me feel closer to her because of all the stories I've remembered and, and shared in the book, but also just reminded me about the gift that we've all been given, you know, not only the gift that of her presence in my life, but my life as well. And all the other lives that are in my life still, you know, so yeah, nature is, is a very, very powerful healer and a powerful reminder about just how joyous life is. Indira and I do, I cannot imagine a better place to leave an episode. You are going to leave the people who are listening today so uplifted as they go into their weekends. Thank you for sharing some stories of your sister and some stories from your own life with us today. Yeah, thank you, Jamila. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Indira Naidu and Jamila Rispi. Indira's book, The Space Between the Stars, is available at all good bookstores and even some of the bad ones, as Jamila would say. It is a moving and uplifting exploration of the power of nature to heal the deepest hurts. Tom and the team will be back in your ears bright and early on Monday morning. Thank you so much for listening. Listener.